Uh, Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We are in part two of our Battle Ready series that we're doing during the sabbatical time. And continue praying for Pastor Jeff. He is coming back this week. Um, I know you guys have definitely missed him. And I just thank him again for this opportunity to be in his pulpit. So Ephesians chapter 6, look at verse 13. When you're there, say word. Amen. Verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God, so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Verse 18, with all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all of the saints. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your uh, glory. God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace, God, that we can come into your throne of grace. God, we can come into your presence. God, thank you for the worship this morning. God, thank you that victory is found in Jesus. God, you are our help. You are our the one that we run to in time of need. And God, I pray that this morning, God, you uh, have me behind your cross. God, I pray that you speak through me. God, it's not me speaking in my flesh or in my abilities, but God, I pray Uh, that I I speak through you because it is only in you, God, that we can do anything. And God, I just pray that you uh, move this morning. God, I pray that we see um, just a mighty movement of your spirit. God, I pray for anybody here who does not know you, God, that they will come to know you this morning before they leave those double doors. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, In high school, I uh, I'd spent several years taking karate because when you're small, you got to do something to defend yourself against the bigger guys. And so I took several years of that. Uh, don't ask me to do anything because it's been years since I've been, in doing, been involved in that. But uh, I would go to competitions, and I love these. This was why you did it. Let's be honest. You want to go and you want to get that trophy. And there was two types of competitions. You had this thing called a kata, which is basically you just do these moves, and it's almost like a karate dance, if you want to look at it that way. Um, But it it was really fun to do that. But here's the big part. It was the sparring. It was the fighting. This is what you wanted to be involved in. And so you had to train up and get ready for that. And it was the hand-to-hand combat. But it wasn't um, a pain-based sparring. You didn't go out there to beat people up. You were trying to get points. The closer you hit people, the better your hit was. Uh, It was points-based. And so what you would do is you would wear this gear. You would put gloves on, you would put uh, foot pads on, you would put like a, a, a foam helmet on, and all this was to protect you and to protect the person that you're fighting against. Because again, you're not out to beat one another up. Actually, if you drew blood, you were disqualified. And so that was very disappointing when that happened to me once. And so you would go and you would get into the ring, you'd have your gear on, and you could not get into the ring without your gear. And this ring was just like a mat, basically. It wasn't a, a boxing ring. And so you would get in there, and then they would say, ready, fight. And then that's when you would go, and you'd have about a one-minute to two-minute uh, sparring match. Whoever had the most points was the winner. And, uh, and that just reminded me of our battle that we have. 
is that we have this battle and God is calling us to be ready to fight. Ready, fight. And that's the title of the message this morning is ready, fight. Because we have a battle. We looked at last week how we have this spiritual enemy. How we are, we are involved in this battle that's raging around us. And we cannot win this battle apart from Jesus. We cannot win this battle in our own strength. And we are always in spiritual battle at some level. And this spiritual battle is, is, is a spiritual aspect to it. So that means we have to have spiritual resources. We talked about that last week. So this week we're going to be looking at what are those spiritual resources. And it's amazing that God has given us all we need for victory. We don't have to wonder, well, how can I have victory in this area? Jesus has provided everything we need for victory in life. And the armor of God is how God has provided us the victory that's found in him. It is through this armor, through his strength, that we can be victorious. And these resources, excuse me, these resources that God has given us makes you ready for battle. And, and as you put this armor on, you are ready to fight. And many commentators look at this armor and they say, and, and, and it's so true, that they look at the armor and it's almost like a summary of the entire letter of Ephesians. Because the entire letter of Ephesians, he's talking about theology and how to live out that theology. So now he's talked about things like salvation, like faith through Christ alone. Faith, we, we live by faith. We have righteousness in Jesus. We are to be seekers of truth. We're to be grounded in the word of God. He has all these topics. And what you're going to find out this morning is that all those topics, all those elements of the Christian life are in the armor of God. It is almost like it's the perfect way to live out the theology, the Christian faith is through putting on the armor of God. But if you notice in verse 13, he says something very significant. We must take the whole armor. Not a piece, not most of it, not 99% of it. We have to take the whole armor of God. And, and this is going to be more of a, a teaching message more than a preaching sermon message because of the, the layout of the text. And the whole, the whole thing that he's doing here is he's laying out a Roman soldier's armor and he's using it as an illustration of what it looks like to have victory in the Christian life, have victory in the spiritual battle. And every piece of the armor plays a major role. And it is through this armor we can, in verse 13, resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. It is through the armor that we can resist the enemy and that we can stand firm in this life. And there are no shortcuts. You can't take a shortcut in the spiritual battle. And I, when I was working at Chick-fil-A, uh, you have a training week, basically, when you, when you go to work there. And they train you in all the ins and outs of Chick-fil-A. And Chick-fil-A is probably one of the most proficient organizations in the fast food restaurant, or they call it the quick service restaurant. You don't call it fast food, you call it quick service. And so, because it is, it is above uh, fast food, in, in, in their opinion. And so, what's amazing in their training is they show you everything you need to know about Chick-fil-A. And, and if you're working the kitchen specifically where I worked out for most of those years, uh, they show you how to put uh, the, the, the chicken on, they show you exactly how the pickle should go on, everything, all of those details. But let's be honest, when you have 200 people standing in line and then another 200 people in the drive-through, some of those things, some of those nitpicky things, you have to 
take shortcuts. You have to take small shortcuts that don't take away from the quality of food, but just get the food out a little bit faster. And so don't get, don't, don't get me wrong, Chick-fil-A is always great in their food, but there's sometimes you got to take shortcuts. But that's not how it is in the Christian life. You can't just take shortcuts to make it come faster. You can't just take shortcuts to make sure that you get things out faster. You have victory quicker. You have to do it God's way. And there are no shortcuts in the spiritual life. So what are these armor? What is this armor of God? What are these resources that God has given us? Because what you're going to see is all of this armor is to equip you for victory. It's not, about, it's, it's not about doing things in your strength. It's not about trying harder. It's that you do everything in God's power through his strength and what he has given you, and you will find victory. So let's look at this armor. Number one, we see the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Look with me in verse 14. He, he restates what he just said in verse 13. Stand firm. This is the imperative. This is the imperative that carries the entire message. Stand firm, therefore. He is making a huge point. You have to stand firm in this spiritual battle. So how? Having girded your loins with truth. The belt of, on the Roman soldier, uh, on, on his armor, was so essential because it held the entire armor together. The breastplate was connected to it. The sword was connected to it. Many times there'd be a strap that would go along that the shield could be connected to it. Most of the armor was attached to this belt. But not just that, but the usual uh, attire of that day was tunics. And these tunics went down to their knees. Now, I know, guys, you would never wear a tunic nowadays because it's basically like wearing a dress. But in, the, in those days, tunics is what everybody wore. It was one piece of sheet that had three holes in it, two for your arms, one for your head, and they slid it on. That was all it was. But that wasn't the best attire, if you will, for battle because you would get tied. I mean, imagine trying to fight in a skirt or fighting in a dress. It's just, it's just not the best way to fight. So what they would do is they would roll this up and they would put it to where it would basically be like shorts and they tuck it inside their belt. And this belt was just a leather strap that had all these different buckles attached to it so they could have what they needed for victory. And, it, and they had to be flexible to fight, so they would tie that tunic up and put it in their belt. And that's what he means by gird your loins. That, 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 that's what this is talking about is you're girding your loins, you're getting ready for battle. And when they had this tunic tucked into their belt, you knew they were going out to fight. You knew it wasn't just everyday life at this point. They were going out for battle. And they were ready to win the war. And so as Christians, we have to be ready for battle with truth. We have to have our belt of truth. And, and we have to be prepared to win this battle with the truth that God has given us. 1 Peter 1.3 uses the same idea. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter is saying, what Paul is saying, is that truth is the foundation of the rest of the armor and our lives. Without truth, the entire armor falls apart. And without truth, chaos happens in our life. Without truth, we have nothing 
to stand on. And this word truth is very personal for me because I love this word because I named my daughter after this word. The word truth in Greek is aletheia. So that if you're ever wondering where we got aletheia from, it is truth, the truth in Greek. And here Jesus or, or Paul is talking about how we are to be firm in truth. And as Christians, we should be defined as seekers of truth. But this is not what our culture teaches us. Our culture does not teach to seek after truth. Now, they, they do use the word truth, but their definition of truth is just a little bit different. So let's unpack this just for a second. Because a very prominent apologist named Abdu Murray, he says that we live in a post-truth world. In the 80s and 90s, you heard of postmodernism. Have you ever heard of that? Postmodernism was basically uh, this idea that um, truth is, is relative and that you don't have to, uh, you don't have to believe in certain things uh, to be a seeker of truth. But postmodernism is different than post-truth because post-truth says that there is no truth. It's not that this truth is relative. It's that there is no truth. There is no absolute truth. You hear this phrase a lot, live out your truth. And this is what they're talking about. When you hear this idea of living out your truth, it is this, it's further than relativism. It is that you don't have to be a seeker of any kind of truth as long as you're okay with it. As long as you have this idea of a sense of self, that is your truth. Whatever you say is true. But Abdu argues that if this is the way that we live, and, this is the way, and if this is the way society is guided, then this is what happens. We have grave consequences. We lose our sense of reason. You see that. We lose our sense of reason without truth. Without truth, we lose our sense of accountability. How can we keep each other accountable if there is no truth. And then we lose our sense of real human value without truth. Truth is the foundation for society, and truth must be the foundation for our Christian lives. John 8, uh, 31 through 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know what? The truth in Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, the definition of being a disciple and remaining in him says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's freedom in truth. Sometimes truth can hurt because truth shows us, especially in God's word, where, where we may have failed. But truth sets us free because even in that, it sets us free from our sin. It sets us free from ourselves. But that is not what the enemy wants us to see. The enemy is a liar and he opposes truth. Further along in chapter 8, in verse, in verse 44 of, of the Gospel of John, you are your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, it's a lie. He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Anything that is not of truth is the opposite, a lie, and that is from the enemy. The enemy is a liar and he opposes truth, so he will do anything he can in your life to take you away from truth. So we have to be grounded in truth. Number two, not just the belt of truth, 
but we have the breastplate of righteousness. The second part of verse 14. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. So, so the, the breastplate was just as it sounds. It was this plate that they put in front of their chest and it covered, the whole purpose was to cover the vital organs, the heart and the stomach. Because if either of those two got damaged, you were not going to win in the warfare. But this, this, this typology of the, the, the breastplate covering those two organs is very important to Jewish culture. Because to, according to the Jews, the heart was very important. But it wasn't this beating heart. The heart represented the mind. The heart represented basically who you really were. And then the stomach was often referenced to how you feel, your emotions. So what he's saying here is that the breastplate protects your mind and protects how you feel, protects your emotions, protects how you live by your emotions. Because so often, this is what the enemy wants to do for us, he wants us to live by thinking wrongly and how we feel. He wants us to live by having the wrong thoughts and making decisions based on feelings. And he desires for us to live by false teachings that will completely take us away from God's word, completely take us away from truth, if he can just have us think and see the world apart from a biblical perspective and make us live not by God's word, not by truth, but by feelings. Because we know that our feelings can change. Look, don't make decisions based on your feelings because it could just be from a bad taco from last night. You cannot live based on how you feel. We have to live in truth. And righteousness is our protection in that. Righteousness is what keeps us from thinking wrongly and living by emotion. Because we have positional righteousness in Jesus. When we got saved, we have Jesus' righteousness placed on us. Our sin was placed on him. And then we have his righteousness placed on us. A right standing before God. But this righteousness here is talking about practical righteousness. And it is living in the light of right standing with God. If we are in right standing with God, then it should change how we live. We should live righteously. Being righteous before God should propel us to live righteously. We should live in, in that aspect of the right standing before Jesus. Paul said this in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 24. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and the holiness of the truth. So we have this new self. The Bible is clear that, that the old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. When you gave your life to Jesus, you didn't just get an upgrade. You didn't just become, I didn't, I didn't become Tyler 2.0. I didn't get this update. It's I became a new person. I became a new being in Jesus. I, ha I have a new self. The old man, the old Tyler has gone away. And the new is here because of the righteousness that God has given us. We can't take off our right standing before God. You can't separate yourself from the love of God. You can't lose your salvation. But what you can do is you can take off living righteously. You can take off living in that perspective. And our faith in Jesus should lead us to live a righteous life. And this is not talking about legalism. This is not talking about doing things to earn your salvation. But Paul is also clear in Ephesians, that we are Christ's workmanship. We are God's workmanship created for good works. 
God has saved us, and in that salvation, we have this sanctification, and it is the process of God making us into his image, and in part of that is we should live a righteous life according to God's word. Warren Wearsby says this, the life that we live, the life that we live either fortifies our lives against Satan's attacks, or it makes it easier for him to defeat us. Because if we are living according to God's word, then there's little room for Satan's attacks to get into our life. But if we're not living according to God's word, then we're opening ourselves up for attack from the enemy. We will not be perfect in this life, but we should strive after the one who is perfect. And through that pursuit of the one who is perfect, he makes us into his image and he gives us the ability to live righteously. And that protects us from thinking wrongly and living by our emotion. We live according to God's word in that. But number three, we also see in this armor of God, the shoes of the gospel of peace. The shoes of the gospel of peace. There are shoes for everything. Like, think about it. There, there's cleats for football, for, for soccer, and then you have different cleats for those sports. You have football cleats, you have baseball cleats, you have soccer cleats. Uh, you have lacrosse cleats. You have all these different kinds of cleats. And then you have different cleats in the cleats. You have the metal part of the cleat, or you have plastic part of the cleat. And then you have um, different high heels. And you have big high heels, small high heels, medium high heels, high heels that look like they're painful to your heel. I mean, it just, so many high heels. I can't imagine how, how Jen does it. And then, and then you have tennis shoes. But it's not just for playing tennis. You got basketball shoes, you got running shoes, you got all different kinds of shoes. And how do we ever choose what shoe to get? I mean, it's whatever event or thing you're doing, whatever purpose. But let's be honest, there's some shoes that have zero purpose. All they are just to look good. They don't feel good, they, they, they cost a lot, but they just really have no purpose but just to be pretty. I mean, and, and, let's, and that's just the truth. That's just reality. There's some guy shoes that are the same way. And, and, and I think of, like, some of the worst shoes. I'm just going to be real with you. Some of the worst shoes to wear are bowling shoes. Like, those are some of the worst. Like, I can't imagine ever going out into the mall wearing bowling shoes. I mean, they're, they're so uncomfortable. But the shoes here described in this passage have complete purpose for our life. They're not just shoes. And also, I was looking up um, who has some of the most shoes in the world. And this basketball player, he plays for the Bucks. His name is P.J. Tucker. Um, they're in the NBA Finals right now. He has over 1,000 shoes. He has, like, this whole other building for his shoes. He puts Jen to shame in that. And so the, 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 these soldiers, they wore shoes. They didn't have 1,000 shoes. They had just one type of shoe. And this shoe was like a sandal. It was more like a Chaco, if you will. And these, these sandals had these nails put down through them, not this way, sticking in their foot, but the other way for it to be in the ground. It was basically like cleats. And the whole purpose of these shoes was for them to be able to stand firm in battle and so that they could walk long distances. So that when they were trekking through different kinds of territory, different kinds of lands, going up mountains, uh, they were able to not slip down and they were able to continue to progress uh, and march towards the battle. These shoes were absolutely essential for them to have victory. Because if they were in hand-to-hand -hand combat, which is how most of their fighting was, 
then if they didn't have these shoes, they would slip and die. They had to have the shoes, these sandals, to live in the battle and to have victory. And this whole idea of the shoes of the gospel of peace is referenced in Isaiah, Isaiah 52, 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings the good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Paul references this in Romans 10 to talk about how the Israelites have rejected the true Messiah, that the true gospel has been presented to them. But Paul says here, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This word preparation, we we have to be ready with the gospel of peace. One theologian said, believers' feet are made ready through the gospel of peace because they have prepared well in understanding the message. So here's Paul's whole point. The gospel of peace is how we can stand firm because when we have accepted the gospel and live in light of the gospel, we have peace. There is peace found in Jesus. He is the prince of peace. He is the God who gives us peace. And Christians should be the ones who know what real peace looks like. And when we have peace in our life, when the enemy attacks, when temptation comes, when discouragement comes, we can stand firm because we have the Prince of Peace as the source of our peace. Because of the gospel, because we live in light of the gospel and we have experienced the salvation in Jesus, we have true peace. And peace is what keeps us firm. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. Jesus is talking here, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. How do we not live in fear? We live in light of the gospel of peace. How do we not fall to temptation or fall to doubt or fall to discouragement? We live in the light of the gospel of peace. And in living in the gospel of peace, we share the gospel of peace because it has changed our life. We're to be people of good news. We're to be people of the gospel in living our life in it and sharing it with other people who need it. But also we see the shield of faith. Number four, the shield of faith. Verse 16, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. This shield was about two and a half feet wide and four and a half feet tall. And people were shorter back then, by the way, thank the Lord. And so this shield actually, if they bent down, protected most of their body. And this is what they would do with this shield. They called it turtling. This is really cool. When they were approaching the enemy, and they'd be firing flaming arrows, we'll look at that in just a second, they would actually put their shields together in this formation, like a half circle, and they would have people in the front, all their shields connected, and then people in the middle having their shields up top, that made it like a turtle shell. And so when the arrows were firing at them, they would just bounce off. It would not hit anyone. They were protecting themselves as a unison, as a garrison, if you will. And so this idea that that the shield protected them from the arrows, the flaming arrows, is significant because what they would also do with this shield, it had leather straps around it, and they would dip it in water 
or some kind of liquid, and they would pull it up, and then when the arrows were coming, these arrows were filled with some kind of explosive most of the time that would, on impact, it would explode and shoot more like flames to go and, and attack other people. It would extinguish it. When the arrows were shot and this wet leather on their shield, uh, it would protect them, and it would extinguish the flaming arrows. And for us, the, what quenches the flaming arrows from the enemy is our faith. But what is faith? We have to understand what faith really is to see what Paul is saying here. Because at the heart of it, faith is completely trusting in God. When you hear this idea of faith, it's not wishful thinking. It's not hoping things to get better. It's knowing that you can trust in the promises of God. You trust in the character of God. Of God. You fully depend on God for everything. That is faith. And faith is a defining characteristic of a person who follows Jesus. Galatians 3, verse 11. Now that no one know that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, faith for so many people seems abstract, but let's think about it practically. We all live by faith in something or someone. Currently, you're living by faith by sitting in that chair. You have faith that the person who made it, the company who made it, actually knew what they were doing so when you put your tushy down, you're not going to fall straight through or fall backwards. You have faith in that chair. You also have faith when you get into your car. You have faith that you know that the people who built that car knew what they were doing and it's not going to explode or something like that. You have faith when you get into an airplane. You have faith when you go to a restaurant because you have faith in that restaurant that they didn't poison it. You, you live by faith. We all live by faith. But for so many people, faith seems so abstract because it's like this idea of, of, of a wishful thinking or something that we just cannot fully grasp. But living by faith is trusting in God's word, at his word, and in his promises. And the scriptures always prove to us, always prove to us that we can trust in the living God. See, God doesn't just tell us, trust in me, and don't show us how and why we can trust in him. The entirety of Scripture shows us why we can trust Jesus, why he is who he says he is, why he is worthy of our worship, why he, is, he never fails, that he is always in control. And that is why when you have doubt, when you have worry, when you are tempted, your faith is what protects you from it. Because when you have faith in Jesus, the doubts will not control you control you. When you have faith in Jesus, the temptations cannot be led to sin because Jesus is more worthy of that. Jesus is worth your trust and your dependence on him. So here's an example. When you have an impure thought, when you have a hateful thought and it comes, you say, no, that is not worth my time because of Jesus. Because that, that doubt that comes, the enemy so often feeds us with doubt of God's word. Think about how Adam and Eve fell. The first sin that entered into the world, that brought into the sin-stained world that we live in, was doubting God's word. Did God really say? Did, did, did God really say? And then that led to doubt, and that led to not trusting in God's word, and then doing exactly what he said not to do. 
See, doubt can take us away from God's word. Now, we shouldn't think about doubt as God's afraid of our doubt, but doubt should always lead us to more faith. When we have doubt, we go to God's word, show that he is greater, and, sh- and he will always prove to us that we can trust in him. Because faith is the mark of a Christian. We are saved by faith, and we draw near to God through faith. Faith will protect us from the doubt and the flaming arrows, all of the attacks that the enemy has on us. Number five, we also see the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Without the helmet, the soldier would die. This protected probably the most vital organ in the entire body, and that's the brain. Brain damage is so deadly and so destructive, and it protected the brain that when they were in hand-to-hand combat or when a sword, and, and these swords were huge, and thick. It wasn't just some little dagger. These swords that they would use, if if it would hit the helmet, hopefully it would bounce off and protect them from getting a deadly or painful blow. The helmet was essential to their victory, and the helmet of salvation is what sustains us and is essential when the enemy attacks, because the battle that we're in is primarily a battle for the mind. It's a battle for how we think. And through salvation, through our relationship with Jesus, we have the ability to think and see the world biblically. And Satan will continue to feed all different kinds of doubt and discouragement and thoughts in our minds that should never be there for the sole purpose of taking away our passion for Jesus. But when we have the helmet of salvation, it's not about getting saved again. It's about living in light of that salvation. And when we have the helmet of salvation, we can see and think from a biblical perspective. We, we are able to know God's word and personally know him and see life from that perspective. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, one of my most favorite passages in scripture. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, Again, this whole idea that our enemy is not people. Our enemy is spiritual. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of forces, fortresses. For we are destroying speculation and every lofty thing that praises itself against the knowledge of God. And in that, we are taking every thought captive. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Our enemy is relentless to feed you with thoughts that you were never meant to think, to feed you with doubt, to feed you with discouragement, to feed you with thoughts that take you away from Jesus, and we have to take those thoughts captive. But what does it look like to take thoughts captive? Um, I have an illustration. I hope this will paint the picture for you. So does anybody know what this is? It's a French press. So I'm a coffee fanatic. I love, love coffee. And I was introduced uh, to a French press in college. And a French press, if you've never heard of it, is, a, is basically how you make a very rich tasting coffee. Um, and and it, it's just a unique flavor. It's not like espresso. It's not like regular coffee. It's just it's a very concentrated, rich coffee. But here's how you make it. You take bowl and water, and you have the water ready, and you put your coffee grounds in the very bottom. 
And so you pull this up, you take it out obviously, you put the coffee grounds in the bottom, you fill it up to about yay high, and in this, I, I was gonna actually do a demonstration, but I thought, knowing my luck, it would spill, and that'd be terrible, so here's an empty one. Um, so the coffee is in the bottom, and you pour the, the boiling water on top of it. There's different ways you can do it. Some people like it stronger, so you put less water in. That's just to your preference. But nonetheless, you put water in, usually to about this line, and then you let it sit for about four or five minutes. This is not the quick express coffee. This is not the, if you're in a hurry, you're making French bread. This is when you're on a Saturday morning, it's raining, it's cold, and you want some coffee. This is that kind of coffee. And then after four or five minutes, you slowly press this down, and what happens is the coffee grounds are stuck on the bottom, and all the coffee itself that you want to drink is pulled up top. You don't want to drink the coffee grounds. That's where the coffee comes from, but once the coffee comes out of that, those coffee grounds are thrown away, right? Nobody drinks coffee grounds. I mean, you can eat chocolate-covered coffee beans, but that's about as far as you want to go with eating coffee grounds. And so those are taken away, and you throw that out, and you pour the coffee. And it's amazing taste in coffee. If you've never had a French press, I encourage you to get one of these. It is fantastic. But that is what it looks like for us to filter our thoughts. Through God's word, God's word is the filter. And what we do is when all those thoughts enter into our mind, we have to press it. We have to filter it through the word of God, through God's perspective. And we take the richness, the good from it, if there is any good, and if there's anything bad and not according to God's word, we throw it away. It's worthless. That's what it looks like to filter and capture our thoughts. Because we have to make the effort to capture our thoughts. It's not a passive thing that happens. We have to take God's word, put it into perspective, and capture our thoughts. And just as it is very rewarding for the patience and effort you put into your coffee, it is so much more rewarding to live a life through a biblical perspective. And lastly, we see the sword of the spirit. The sword of the spirit is our weapon. It's our offensive weapon, and we use it for defense as well. I love Star Wars. And Star Wars has the Jedi who have the lightsaber. And the lightsaber was the weapon of the Jedi. And I love the quote from episode four by Obi-Wan saying, this is your father's weapon, giving it to Luke. This was the weapon of the Jedi Knight, not a clumsy or random as blaster, an elegant weapon for a more civilized age. And this is what God's word is. It is our weapon. And just as a lightsaber was what defined a Jedi, God's word is what should define us. We should have God's word at our disposal every single day. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharpening two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, above joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is inerrant and infallible. It, is, it has no errors. It cannot fail. And through God's word, we have victory. But all of this armor, all of this armor is powered through prayer. All of this armor is powered through prayer. Without prayer, we cannot be victorious. Prayer, as it's been said before, is the lifeline of the believer. Prayer is what energizes and enables us to wear the armor and have victory. He says that we should be ready to pray at all times. And Adrian Rogers said this in closing. 
Adrian Rogers said this, your spiritual life will never rise above your prayer life. Your spiritual life will never rise above your prayer life. Someone else said the battle is won with the bending of the knees. If you're in spiritual warfare, if you're finding yourself defeated, bend your knees. Go to Jesus in prayer because we can boldly come to him in our time of need. With every head bowed, every eye closed. We are in this spiritual warfare. We're in this battle. And we have to be ready. We have to be prepared. As soon as we gave our lives to Jesus, we signed up for spiritual warfare. And as we close this morning's service, I just want you to think about the battle that you're in as a follower of Jesus. And are you ready? Are you prepared? Are you living in the resources that God has given you? Because he has given you all you need for victory. God has supplied everything for you. But are we seeking him for that victory? We just have to trust Jesus, take the whole armor, and be ready to win the fight. I've read the last page of the Bible. We win. We win. We're victorious in Jesus. But are we living in light of that victory? And so this time is for you to respond in however God has led you, however God has spoken to you. And if you're here this morning, you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible says whoever can call, will call in the name of the Lord, will be saved. That's a promise. If you turn from your sin, you trust in Jesus, you will be saved. So a short invitation.